Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Okay, now it's uh, still Monday afternoon now. It's a... 3.30, 3.40, something like that. And I'm going to try to do the second bio to make up for last week. Trying to catch up. And what I did this morning was almost something like a stream of conscious um, intro. And I'll tell you where I'm going with this. Um, I want to do a famous Sephardic rabbi that you never heard of, most of you. And that would be in the 19th century, the Pnei Yitzchak which I don't think means much to m- most people, uh, Yitzhak Abulafia, in, uh, who was a chief rabbi in Damascus, uh, and of whom, unfortunately, we, we lately we know a, a whole lot about. I don't know how to put it. You'll see what I mean. Um, so here, uh, uh, and this is something just happened to come across, because as I said before, with I saw Rabbi Shalom Amar and this and that and the other, and my mind worked in strange ways, and this is who I thought uh, I would talk about, because I'm pretty sure that most of the people listening to this have no idea about the Sephardic rabbi, especially in the Ottoman Empire, particularly in the 19th century. Uh, the Turks ruled a big empire, even by the 1800s when they lost a lot of it, still was plenty left, and there was a belt of Jews, and the great majority of them were Sephardic in the sense having come from Spain originally, or at least uh, culturally imperialized everybody, as I mentioned in the past. And the result is that in all your important communities in the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which includes Greece and uh, the Balkans and uh, Turkey, as we call it today, Anatolia and Syria and Israel and Egypt and Iraq, these are all places that have famous killers that you've heard of a little bit at least. And they had real basins and real autonomous coercive communities of the old school till very late. And therefore you had basins and th- you know, really functioning Jewish communities one way or another. And therefore uh, every community had to have at least a tiny, at least, at least, at least a tiny elite of Dayanim and people knew Halacha. And usually a person would serve as the Av Bezdin or the Rav Rashi, whatever you want to call it. Different names they had for that office had to be somebody in New Epis. And uh, therefore there's like a galaxy of people that are kind of unknown to most of us Lithuanian-centric, Ashkenazi-centric um, Jews who left a huge amount of uh, literature out there, usually in the form of Shalos and Chubis, uh but which were always halachalamites because long after uh, the decline of the basin system in Europe and Christian Europe, it still chugged along in the Middle East, especially in the Turkish Empire. Although it got very complicated during the lifetime of our hero today, as you shall see. And so uh, the person I'm talking about, Yitzhak Abulafia, served uh, for a lot of time off and on in the middle of fights that he had as the chief rabbi of Damascus. And he has six volumes of Shalom Chub Pnei Yitzhak, Pnei Yitzhak, 
which I've seen. I never bought it because as far as I'm aware, it's always the old chicken scratch print. And I don't like that sort of thing unless I have some particular reason to jump into it. I'm always waiting that they should come out with a new edition. I asked the store actually in Baltimore if they have a new edition. He's got the old one. I don't mean put a new cover on it. I mean new print. Uh, and uh, we'll see. Uh, but anybody could knock out six volumes of Charles Jews, obviously, with no dumbbell. Now, our hero lived most of his life in Damascus and that part of the world, and maybe Tiberia. And therein lies a tale. Because today, Damascus is the capital of a country called Syria. However, Syria never existed in history. There never was a country called Syria. I'm saying something interesting, perhaps. Most people don't know that. Just like there never was a country called Greece until the 1800s. Uh, the area that you and I call Syria always was part of some larger area. It belonged to another empire ruled by somebody else. Or it was divided into different little uh, kingdoms like in the time of the Tanakh. So you have Aram, Aram Naraim, Aram Tsova, Aram Damasek, Aram this, Aram that, you know, Aram Hamas. You, you, you look in the Tanakh, Shmuel Baal Beis and places like that, you see the different Arams. And sometimes the prince of one territory in Syria might conquer the others, like Chazoel, temporarily. But there wasn't such a thing with a consciousness called I'm a Syrian. The word Syria, I think, is a Greek word, which was picked up by the Mishnah times they call Syria. But in the old days, they never called it that. And this went on and on and on. And it only changed after the First World War and really after the Second. After the Second World War, I won't go into all the details, there emerged an actual independent country called Syria, which naturally claims that they've always been a, a, a country, and that's the Assad dictatorship. And as we all know, they went through a huge civil war. They'll go through several others before we're done, because they're not really a, not really a country. It's all kind of different groups. All kind of different groups. So the Jews have always lived in Syria, and the Jews have always lived in Damascus. Today's parsha, as you know, is Lech uh, You have Damascus Eliezer. So in the time of Abraham, you had Damascus. You had Damascus. Uh, and it's often referred to. And um, it was a place where a lot of different groups lived, Jews being among them. Now, I'm not going to give it to a whole business. Suffice it to say, by the time you get to the Middle Ages and afterwards, down till today, you had uh, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Muslims, Christians, Jews. That's how it always was. In Damascus, like many places in the Ottoman Turkish Empire, you had different religious groups, and each group did its own thing. So for the, you know, the Jews had their own little system, how they ran their community, and the Christians had theirs, the Muslims had theirs. Of course, the Turkish government was on top of everybody. That's the way it went. And in the case of Syria, as I said again, it was always part of somebody else's empire. So in the 1500s, it was conquered by the Turks from the Egyptian Mamluks, and they had conquered from the Ayyubids, and they had conquered from the, the Crusaders, and Sechad Gadyo. So... If I'm living in Damascus, I'm not living in the capital of any place. I'm living in a city in the middle of a huge territory of land, which is part of a giant empire, and there are no borders. So if I were Jewish and living 100 years ago or 120 years ago, and certainly before that, I could go anywhere in the Middle East, and it was all the same country. The Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Turkish Empire, used to rule everything we call the Middle East. I just want you to understand that. So... Their empire included, besides the Balkans, I said before, all the countries you and I in the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia and Yemen for a while also. And uh, so I can travel to Yerushalayim. 
and then from there to Constantinople, and if I want to go back to Aleppo, it's all one big empire. That's my point. And therefore, Damascus wasn't anything special in terms of a capital city or anything like that, but it was always an important, you know, Jewish community because of its antiquity and, you know, there's trade there and rivers and otherwise you wouldn't have a community. Now, we're going now in the 1800s. By the 1800s, so um, our hero was born in 1824 and I think died in 1914, 1910, something like that. So he lived all through the 1800s. Uh, but uh, he had very unusual uh, upbringing simply because his father was an important rabbi. His grandfather was a famous rabbi. I think he was rabbi in, in Damascus. But the Sephardim, very often you have this um, old boy network of rabbinic families of uh, great scholarship. Uh, you know, Ashkenazim had the same thing. So usually you see the same names popping up in these different gedolim. You know, same names. Abulafia, because here there's an Abulafia, there's an Abulafia. Uh, in Spain, the Riyad Ramah was an Abulafia. That doesn't mean they're all the same family, by the way. They might be, they might not be. It's hard to tell. Uh, and our hero's father, listen to close to what I'm telling you. He was born, I think, in 1824, if I remember correctly. So when he was 15, 16 years old, his father, who was a, a Chashavarov, converted to Islam and became a Malshin and told on everybody. Ah, you'll tell me, oh, it's unbelievable, it's terrible. No, you got into the context. It was not his fault at all. I'll tell you. In 1840, the Jews in Damascus got hit with one of the most worst of the blood libels, Elil Islam, where somebody was missing and said the Jews killed him for the blood to use for matzah. Now, I'm going to tell you something very interesting. The idea of the blood libel, which is the accusation that Jews kill, uh, especially Christians, but certainly non-Jews, in order to get their blood to use in Jewish religious ceremonies, which is, of course, a big lie, obviously. I shouldn't even have to say that. Uh, so this is an idea that started, I think, among the Christians and the Catholics in the Middle Ages. And when it happened, the Jews were screwed unless they could get to the Pope and they would say to the Pope, listen, make your own Drisha B'chakir. You'll see it's not true. It's not part of the Jewish religion to do this. It's just not true. And the Pope would do that. It happened several times. He made his own Drisha B'chakir and he came out and said, it's not true. Leave him alone. The Jewish religion is stupid and they've rejected Jesus and they're bad for this reason and that reason. But the Alil Islam is not true. You get it? In other words, if you tell me that they're bad, they're ugly, they're steel, they this, that, and the other, that's one thing. If you tell me that they go and kill people for the blood and all that, that, that particular Nakud is not true. And that's the best the Jews could do. That's the best the Jews could do. Uh, starting in the 13, 1400s, the Turks conquered a huge empire in the Balkans, in, in the eastern part of Europe. And then, this is not known, the Turks really started out, so to speak, having an empire in Europe and then spread into Asia. Uh, and they imposed the Islamic rule on the conquered peoples. So if you lived in the 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 1900s, certainly, yeah, to, to 1900s, the Bulgarians, the Greeks, the Serbians, the Romanians, the Albanians, and so forth and so on, were all under the Turks. And the Jews were living there also. Now, the Christians there were really bad news. They were worse to the Jews than the Muslims were. That's why when the Jews lived in the Ottoman Empire, the Turks could trust them because they're not on the side of the Christians. 
it'll be worse for them under the Christians. Now, the uh, I'm going by memory here, but I remember this is interesting. What I'm going to tell you, back in the 1500s, some Christians started with Alila Hasnam in the Turkish Empire in the time of the famous Turkish Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. He was the greatest of the Turkish rulers from like 1520 to 1566, I think something like a long time. And he was, uh, we call him Suleiman the Magnificent. They call him Suleiman the Lawgiver, the Kanoni, which means he was into Mishpat. And the Jews approached him with, but they said, you know, Christians are saying the blood libel. And he issued a, a decree in which he said, the blood libel that they say about the Jews is bogus, Sheker, it's BS, it's not true, it's Chazov, it's everything, you know, it's just completely uh, bunk. And therefore, no Ottoman Turkish court or governor or anything like that should ever pay attention to that. If they ever say this about the Jews, it's a Sheker of Chazov. Isn't that interesting? So that means that if you live in the Turkish Empire and for hundreds of years and somebody was missing or something like that, so the Jews killed them and let's go attack the Jews, all the rest of it, Jews would go to the police. And they would go to the Turkish uh, governor. And they say, look, they're saying something which under your orders are not true. And the Ottoman Turkish uh, government never ever pursued and made a drisha hakir on a blood libel. They said it's bogus, which of course it was. Now, we're going to go to our time in the 1800s. Uh, what happened... And 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 this is just a sad fact for the Jews. In the 1800s, they used to have the Turkish Empire, but it was already starting to become weaker. And the ruler of Egypt, in other words, the guy that the Turks put as governor of Egypt was Mehmed Ali, and was an Albanian Muslim, and he basically went independent on his own, went into business for himself. And he established Egypt as a separate Medina, which theoretically uh, was under the Sultan, but really was his own empire, which lasted until 1952. Now, in 18, let me see now, 1830, I guess, he um, rebelled against the Sultan, and he invaded and conquered what you and I today would call Syrian Palestine. Uh, his son was a famous general, Ibrahim Pasha. I spoke about this once in some podcasts, but I wouldn't expect you to remember it, because I don't even remember exactly. And the, and the Egyptian army, that's what it was, fought the Turkish army and beat them, because the Egyptian army was better organized. And that means that from eight, for 10 years or so, or 11 years, uh, the bulk of the Middle East was held by the Egyptians against the Turks. In other words, Egypt, plus Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, that whole area. And he was helped by the French a lot. And so he gave them a lot of uh, covet and stuff like that. All of which was bad for the Jews, as we shall see. Because in the year 1840, Syria and Palestine were still ruled by the Egyptians, by Ibrahim Pasha, the son of Mehmed Ali. And there came the famous Ali Lazdam, where a guy was missing, a Catholic priest, Father Thomas, and they said the Jews killed him for the blood of Pesach. Now, had this been a year later, the European countries forced the Egyptians out and go back to Egypt and restored the Turks. And then the Ottoman government would have said it's bogus because they already had a decree like that from their greatest sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, who said that the whole idea of the Ali Hazdam is Shekhar B'chazam. 
Unfortunately for the Jews, in the year I'm talking about, it was still held by the Egyptians and the French supporters. The French are a bunch of mumsers, especially in the old days, and the Catholic ones were the worst, and they were always pushing, they were always super anti-Semitic in the Middle East, just to do a bunch of hilarious. I mean, really bad news. And so what happened was that this missing priest, the French consul, like the ambassador there, said the Jews did it. And I want you to know that the uh, he told this to the French government, and the British consul sold to the British government, and the French government believed it. You imagine that in the 1840s? Okay, I mean, can you believe this? Uh, and uh, the prime minister of France was uh, Thiers, the historian, and he said, look here. Uh, he thought Rothschild went to him. He said, what are, you talk, what are you doing over here? And he said, look, Rothschild, I know it's not a Jew like you, but listen, we all know the Jews used to do this in the Middle Ages, so maybe in Damascus they're still holding by the Middle Ages. You get what I'm saying? Thiers was a famous historian. He was a PhD, educated guy, and they all believed that the, that the Alila Tom is a true thing. They couldn't get over the fact that it was total bull from top to bottom. You understand? Because usually if I tell something about somebody, you say, the whole story is made up 100% bull, and the answer is yes. So anyhow, the problem is that they immediately launched an investigation, but Turkish style, I mean, or Egyptian style, in which you're arrested, you're killed, and then you have a trial, and then you're found guilty. A halavite should be so easy. Uh, and what happened was they wanted to get a confession. Now, even though it's 1840, they still use the medieval methods, and they tortured the Jews to get confessions out of them. And they had the most unbelievable tortures. I'm looking at a famous article. What's his name? Professor Frankel wrote a whole book on this, if you're interested, in the Damascus Affair, in Hebrew and in English. And he has over here, Sapar uh, Yehudi Shlom Chalak, that they uh, arrested a Jewish barber in Damascus, Nechshah Behubal Hakira, was brought in for investigation to, to, to find out whether they actually kidnapped this priest and killed him and used his blood. Because the last thing that the guy left, the, the dead guy left, was near his barbershop. They tortured the hell out of him. He confessed. Well, Jesus is. <laughs> you know, what's the point of a confession under torture? You're going to say anything. They don't care. Now, I'm going to say again, this happened in 1840 at the instigation of the French consul, Rati Manon, uh, who knew better. So what a hilarious the guy was. He's burning in hell because he knew that they're just getting a, a, through torture, a false confession, and he went with it. And this poor barber, who they tortured, uh, blabbed seven names. No, they, they probably said, was it the rabbi? Was it the chazan? Was it the rich guy? Was it this guy? He said, yes, it was all them. He mentioned Hasochir David Harari, the richest guy, richest Jew, David Harari, Ushloshes Echov, and his three brothers, Yitzhak Yosef, Dodom Yosef Laniado, he said another guy was Laniado. So he mentioned all the rich guys in the community, Ushnei Rabbanim, okay? And he mentioned two people who are Rabbanim, Moshe Abulafia, Pinosha Chaima Abulafia, or Moshe Saloniki. So one of them was Moshe Abulafia, that's the father of our hero. So he was like a rob, actually a businessman in, 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 um, in Damascus, and he had the bad luck to be named under torture for some, as somebody who tortured this priest and killed him and used the blood. Elu these seven guys were immediately arrested. Chalka Mosam, some of them, like the rich brothers, were tortured to death. 
Okay, so in other words, they wouldn't confess that they did it. I'll say it again, they're tortured to death. hodu, And the other ones uh, confessed. I mean, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? What's a confession? Moshe Abulafia, the father of our hero, Moshe Abulafia, who was 40 years old at the time, he was a victim of terrible tortures. They did the Stalinist tactics. They wouldn't let him sleep for 72 hours. They kept him up for 72 hours. Just think about that. Right? And on March 2nd, he says, Oh, I'm not done. And then he was dragged around on the ground by in a certain anatomical way, I will not go into, uh, pulled by a horse. And then he was bastinadoed. They beat him with a sharp stick on, on the bottom of his feet, you know, on the, on the soles of his feet. This was, All this was unbelievable tortures. So guess what? When the 2nd of March, he said, he said, I want to convert to Islam. Are you blaming him? You see, that's what I was saying before. I, how can a person as a rabbi go and convert to Islam? He was mamish tortured unbelievably. Like I say, I didn't go into great details of what the exact anatomical stuff they did to him, but it's unbelievable tortures. And he changed his former plea of innocence. And he said, yes, I'm the one who gave the bottle of the blood of the victim to the chief rabbi of Damascus, Yaakov and Tebi. And he said the chief rabbi was the brains behind the whole operation. He's the one who dreamed up the whole murder. And he agreed to translate passages in the Talmud. In other words, Moshe Abelafia, uh, which describe in the Talmud how you're allowed to do this sort of blood libel stuff. The chief rabbi was brought in and he had a vikuach. Imagine these shmos, vikuach, a debate with Abulafia over the meaning of the different passages in the Talmud, whether or not they permit the blood libel. In the official um, record of the judicial proceedings, the, the legal proceedings, if you want to call it that, they have 18 pages of translations and arguments over what the Gemara means. In terms of, you know, I can imagine they probably said Tosha Bagoim Harog, and you know what's the right Marine Vilaman. They probably said stuff like that. Plus another eight pages of arguments between the new Muslim guy uh, Moshe Abulafia and the chief rabbi of of Damascus. Uh, what do you call it? And Tebi, right? Yaakov and Tebi. Uh, do you get what I'm saying? Now, I want to tell you something. I don't blame him a bit. Why? The Yim the Gemara says, I remember that Gemara, that we all know the story of the three companions of Daniel, and how Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't bow down to the idol, I'll throw you in the fiery furnace. And they said, kill us. But the Gemara is like this. Of course, that's courageous, no question about it. But on the other hand, you can hear that, you know, shoot me. It's a quick death. I'm not going to bow down the other. You throw me into the fiery furnace. In a few seconds, I'm gone. So for a few seconds of torture, no, Mela. But what if it was a long, not a few seconds? What if it took hours and days? 
and they roast you and bake you and pull this apart and that apart, like I say, and get it all to your anatomy and all the rest of it, in unbelievable exquisite tortures that never cease, then Hanay Moshe would have bowed down to the idol also. You can't expect a person to hold out under those circumstances. It's not human. Uh, So the reason I'm saying it is, imagine our hero, who's growing up, this was a nightmare. And this continued for a year because it took a while for the word to get out. And the guy who saved the day, to the degree that you can say he saved the day, was Montefiore, uh, who immediately got permission from the British government and went to the Middle East to try to fix things up and save those who had been wrongly accused. Now, during the time Montefiore, and a, and a big French Jew also, uh, Adolf Kremio, uh when they went to the Middle East, and Montefiore was friends with, um, with the only European statesman who said it's bogus. The European governments, and I think even the American press, said, you know, there isn't such a thing as Aliyah The Jews do do this. Not our local Jews, but, you know, the ones in the Middle East and so forth. I mean, people believed it. The British ambassador said he believed it. Um, it's funny, the guy who uh, said it's all bogus was Lord Palmerston, uh, the Queen Victoria's foreign minister, who was a real character and a half, but he was a great friend of the Jewish people. That's a fact. And he said, all this is bogus, and he fired the British consul who said he believed it, and he said, he said to the London Times, you're all stupid. You understand? You know, you're all stupid. And you can believe a thing like this. And he helped Montefiore, you know, quash it. But of course, it didn't do any good for those who were already dead. And it didn't repair the tortures that had been done on the people. But our hero's father was able then to come back and be Jewish again. But when the, but you can just imagine, you know, let's put it this way, what it was like um, having gone through all that to resume your place in the synagogue, you know. Now, our hero uh, was therefore, when the father was arrested, and, and let me say that by the time a year passed by, the Egyptians had been kicked out and the Turks went back, and, uh, you know, and the Turkish government wanted to kiss up to England. Therefore, it had a happy ending in the sense that the Turks said it wasn't true, and they renewed the decree of Suleiman that it's not true, and so on and so forth. But you want to know something? The, the Gaim still believe it, and they just simply say that Montefiore bought him off, or, or Rothschild or something paid him off. That's all they say. You, you can't, you know, you can't uh, break it. So our hero went to um, Tiveria, which is not far away from Damascus, but was far enough away that you were out, out of control of this business. And uh, that's where he went to Yeshiva with uncles and this, uh, you know, all these Spider-Man related to each other. So uh, that's where he grew up. Now, it's really funny. I have a book called Chachmei HaMizrach, Ziv de Muslim, which is a very frummy type, uh, you know, uh, thing I picked up in Israel years ago uh, about famous Sephardish Gadolim from an Ashkenazi writer. Uh, and it's, it's completely, uh, you know, hagiographic, you know what I mean? Uh, revoltingly so, I might even say. And, you know, he doesn't go into any of this kind of stuff because why would he? But it's really funny because he has a story here from the legends or whatever of the Pnei Yitzhak, of our hero, of Yitzhak in which he says, I'm looking for it, in which he says that um, when he was young, he, he learned the Yeshiva in Tiberia, and at first he wasn't learning well, and then a guy like Shtachtim, as a result, he doubled down 
and he really wanted to, and he learned of a storm, uh, you know, this kind of thing, and, uh, and, and things like that. Well, I'm sure, in my opinion, having a, a, a history like I just described, and a father like I just described, so, so uh, which wasn't anybody's fault. I'm going to say the father's a victim, okay? Uh, I'm sure this really stirred him at the age of 15, 16, to double down and say, I guess I'm going to restore the family honor and glory by become a godal. That's what I think. Uh, and he really threw himself into the things. He became a big posig. Now, um, he moved back to Damascus and got married there. And so we're talking about like the middle 1800s. So here's where it gets interesting because there's two ways of doing rabbinic biographies or any biography. You can do it external, you can do it internal. Externally, you just look like what are the facts of the guy's life and what did he write? Internally, you already got to do homework. What was going on in the community at that time? It so happens there's a professor, I think his name is Harel or something like that in Israel, who writes all about, he must be Syrian, writes all about Damascus and Aleppo and all these other places. He's written like a thousand articles on it, something like that. Uh, and he knows his stuff. And he's written a lot on the Penei Yitzhak, by the way. And the bottom line is that uh, in Damascus, up to the 1870s, shall we say, so um, the Jewish community ran in the old school way. And that was, you have the richy riches who, uh, you know, control everything. But on the other hand, they pay about 60 or more percent of the taxes to the Turkish government. So, because the other people are poorer. And so basically, you know, if, if they're kicking in the money, they're going to control everything. What about the rabbi? That's always the balance of power throughout Jewish history in the Kehillahs. Does the rabbi have power? Do the richie riches have power? The answer is they both do. They got to work it out. And the dynamics are sometimes the rabbi was a stronger character, sometimes a weaker character. And among the richie riches, you know, sometimes they were united. Usually they were disunited. If you had several different rich people in the Jewish community, traditionally, usually they were at war with each other over covet, over money, or who knows what. I mean, this is the way it went. So let's say, I'm just making this up, let's say somebody like myself lived a couple hundred years ago, and I became a rabbi in a, a basin in a Kehillah somewhere. I got to know right away that there's Team Friedman and there's Team Schwartz, and they don't like each other, and if I favor Team Friedman, I'm going to have a war against me by Team Schwartz, and vice versa. And when it comes to Chas and Torah, Chas and this covered, that covered, this, that, and the other, you know, a hundred different ways, it's always like, who are you favoring? And uh, you got to know how to balance, do a balancing act. That's exactly what happened in Damascus. And uh, therefore, the Rabbanim and all the rest, you know, he decided to walk like a certain tightrope, shall you put it that way. However, it was the old school of one of the things, the, the interesting thing about the old type of Richie Rich was that they did look at the Torah as a source of covenant glory. So many of these guys would would, would would bankroll their own little yeshivas. You know, 10, 20 guys, 30 guys at the most, uh, maybe in their house or a shul near their house that they owned. And that's how Torah was done, you know, scholarship in this Friday world. The different guys who had money would sort of bankroll these local little things. And so... If there were 20 or 30 rich people in uh, rich families in Damascus, which is probably what it was, I don't know exactly, 
You can imagine there are 20 or 30 different little kolels or little yeshivas or this and the other. And that is a way of you know promoting learning. I mean, that, that's one way of doing it. Okay? Um, now, here's the thing. As long as things ran that way, which they have for centuries, so if there were poor people, of course, there were in the community, the rich guys could sort of like pick it up. Uh, they could, you know, give them tzedakah to stop them from starving. They could maybe provide a certain amount of employment. They could certainly make sure that the, uh, you know, basic needs of the community were met. When it comes to taxes, it's always a tricky business. Uh, the rich riches are always trying to promote the uh, meat tax, the gabilla, because that's a non-progressive tax. You know what I mean? In other words, everybody pays the same amount for the meat. And, you know, if you're rich, you want a non-progressive tax. If you're poor, you want a progressive tax. The richer the more you pay. And it worked out the way it worked out. Uh, our hero, therefore, grew up, let's say, for example, in the 1850s and the 60s, learning up a storm and uh, going back and forth from uh, Damascus to Tiberia. And he already published the first Sefer with Shalas and Chuba. So you see, he had Ed for Aloha. And people did send him Shilas uh, back and forth. And uh, he, he, he already had, a, you can see, sort of a cantankerous personality. I suspect that this had to do with the family background that I just described with the father and all the rest. But I could be wrong, you know. But it seems to me, you know, that that, that can't be an absent factor. And... Uh, Therefore, he got involved in a lot of these personal fights with other Sephardic Rabbanim, which is very typical in the Sephardic uh, rabbinic history, if you know all the details. I mentioned before about Yosef and the, and the Shlomo Amar. You know, they get these uh, tips and all the rest of it. And I see that, uh, what do you call it? Uh, where is it here? Yeah, I see a thing from Harel. I'll just I'll give, just give you an idea. I'll read a page. Give me an idea of how, how this stuff works out. Yitzhak Abulafian, Sholem Moshe Chai Gagin, his father was the, the the chief rabbi, became friends in Yerushalayim during their youth. The close ties of friendship in those days were further strengthened when they uh, came married. Uh, let's put it this way. Team A married somebody from Team B. And they make, made frequent visits to Damascus. They would stay and his brother-in-law, or Rabbi Yitzhak Abalafia's, and in 1868, Rabbi g- gave him a, a Kabbalah as to be a shochet, and they used to stay in his house when he visited Yerushalayim, and so on and so forth. On one occasion, while staying in Yerushalayim, our hero, Rabbi Yitzhak Abalafia, showed uh, Gagin, Shalom Moshe Gagin, a psak of his, concerning a machlokas that occurred in 1847, between two branches of the Farchi family, regarding the ownership of a promissory note, from one of the Catholic monasteries in Yerushalayim. The, the Farchi was the rich families of the Sephardim uh, in the Middle East at that time. Uh, one of them had been the court Jew of the, in Akko and so forth. Uh, now, it's worthy noting that this question, which already was 20 years old, had been originally raised for discussion before the father of Gagin, or Abraham Chaim Gagin, who was the chief rabbi in Yerushalayim, uh, and also by Chaim Nisan Abulafia. So in other words, the two grandsons are dealing with a Shaila and a Machlokis and a Locha, which the grandparents already dealt with long before. On this occasion, Shalom Gagin did not agree with Yitzhak Ablafia's Psak. When he published his first volume of his book, Pnei Yitzhak, Rabbi Ablafia, concerning the Shaila, 
he quoted Gagin's words, and he tried to show that his opposition to the ruling was mistaken. So in other words, he mentioned, my friend disagrees with me, and I'm going to show you why my friend is wrong. But he didn't ask the friend if it's okay for me to write this in the safer. So that can look like a real diss. Gagin was infuriated by this public repudiation of his ruling, and he leveled four substantial charges against our hero. His main argument, and he published it in the safer, okay? Uh, called, uh, what was it called? Uh, Lev Sameach, something like that. Yismach Lev. His first and main argument was that Balafi showed him the ruling on the assumption he would agree with it, but once he agreed, he saw that he disagreed with him, he altered the text of his own ruling and, and, the, and the reply Rabbi Gagin printed the falsified version in order to demonstrate he was right. So he accused him of, I don't know what, you know, uh, not plagiarism, but, you know, falsifying the, 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 the words. In addition, he argued that he hurt him by representing him as disagreeing with his own father. And it goes on, in other words, let's put it this way. And he said he's arrogant and haughty language against them. So it really turned into a tiff. But only, you know, these kind of uh, spratty elite rabbis would write whole swarm on their tiff. <laughs> That's the funny part. You know, I couldn't see Rishos Lanter doing something like that. Uh, and Yitzhak Abafi tried to go to Shalom and make up with him. And he went to the base medrash. And he tried to bury the hatchet. And the other guy wouldn't listen. And he sent 10 people, you know. Uh, he said, you have to apologize to my father who's already dead. And he sent 10, 10 people to the cemetery. You get the idea I'm talking about. And Rabbi Yaakov Shalom Yashar got involved in it. So, uh, so I remember, he, he's like this. So Rabbi Gagin wrote a whole safer called, um, what's it called? Yismach Lev. And the other guy, and, and our hero wrote a book called Lev Nishbar. So, Lev Nishbar means I feel bad about the whole thing, but Lev Nishbar means the book Yismach Lev, I'm busting it. <laughs> you see? That's how it is. But it's all in, 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 in halachic matters. That's the point. Now, here's the thing. Uh, in the 1870s, so these have two rabbis, and they died and so forth. So our hero got appointed to be one of the two rabbinim in Damascus, and he wanted to be the head rabbi. And there's no question, I would say, looking, you know, from the point of view of Torah scholarship, that he was the biggest Talmud Chacham. But just because you're the biggest Talmud Chacham does not automatically mean that you uh, are the best person fit to be a rov, because the rabbinus, especially of a Kehla, requires all kinds of talents, and a certain amount, and in times of change, requires the ability to adapt to change. And the most interesting part to me is that our hero was from the old school of the Spartan, and what was required in the late 1800s was a certain attitude, uh, 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 necessary to change, and while he did in some ways, not in others. Now, what I mean specifically is this. In 1875, a catastrophe hit the Damascus, the Jews, and elsewhere. And it's a catastrophe that could hit the United States also. The government declared bankruptcy. Okay? Now, all these richie riches were merchants. They made a lot of money. But what did they do with the... But, but they bought government bonds to protect the money. Guess what? All of a sudden, bankrupt. I mean, mamish bankrupt. Uh, now, this is going to happen in America, right? Because we're $30 trillion in the hole. And maybe $31 trillion, And soon it's going to be $40 trillion, $50 trillion, trillion, I said. So it's going to come a point where you can't pay it off. I mean, you tell me, uh, I'm not an economist, but, uh, you know, I'm not even good in arithmetic, but I can count a little bit, and I don't see how they can ever pay off this $30 trillion business, you know what I mean? Uh, maybe some of you real smart, you can send me in the numbers. I actually thought Trump was going to declare Chapter 11, because he's got so, many, so much experience in it. Uh, 
But sooner or later, it's going to happen in America. And what's going to happen to all the people? In other words, let's put it this way. Overnight, all the richy riches were wiped out. And that means that Kayla has no money coming in. And you still have to pay the Turkish uh, taxes. And the, the poor were really uh, stuck. And the rich, who were ruined, left Damascus and went elsewhere uh, to try start again businesses in, in, in some other situation. And so Yumamsh ended up, our hero, being the rabbi of a kehillah that just went broke. And there's no money to pay anything. And what do you do? What do you do? Now, he himself had a daughter who married a rich guy. So he personally, Laniato, was able to, you know, survive. But what do you do for the poor? And what do you do for the people who are middle class and now all of a sudden are poor? You get it? Now, this was Mom's a problem. And when I say it's a problem, it's no joke. One of the things we discuss all the times in the in the press and all in Israel is, what do you do for from guy in Israel who doesn't have education? How is he going to make a living? Poverty in the Haredi community, both in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, on the other hand, you don't want to give them a limud echol. On the other hand, you know you want to be the rest of their life that their mom is starving. Now, Israel is a socialist state. So they give you, uh, uh, you know, uh, welfare to some degree. Turkey was not a socialist state. You get a penny. And therefore, if you couldn't make it, you die. That's all. And you started to see not only Jews, but Jews in particular were dying from starvation. And when that happens, then one of the reactions that happens to kids is um, if they stay in town, is they'll go into a crime. The girls will go into prostitution. And so, while our hero was the Rav there, and was a very competent Rav in the traditional rabbinical role, and he's knocking out these volumes, volume 2, volume 3, 4, 5, and 6, of Shalos and Shalos Pnei Yitzhak, and you get Shalos from all over the world, and all that is good. But in the kill itself, you have people starving to death, and you have girls that are turning to the prostitution, and yet that brings in the crime, and the Turks and the Christians made it that all the Znus and everything should be located within the Jewish neighborhood, which turned the Jewish quarter in, in Damascus into a crime scene, and you couldn't even go to shul without being beaten up, and things like this, and it became like a nightmare. And, uh, you know, what exactly do you do? Now, in the case of Ritzig Avalafia, he was willing to cooperate with the French assimilationist movement, the Alliance Israeli Universelle, called Israel Chavirim, to set up what we would call today Jewish public schools. The French, in the second half of the 1800s, established like a society to try to modernize all the Sephardic communities throughout the Sephardic world, Alliance schools. It was partially good, partially bad. The bad part was that they were unfrom. The good part was that they gave you an education that you can learn a Parnosa from. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. How are you going to make a Parnosa? If you want to be a, a get a, a what we call liberal arts education, uh, how are you going to do that in the Turkish Empire? You want to work for the government or any in any capacity, something like that, for the city, municipality, you got to work on Saturday. And they knew that the Jews at that time at least still didn't want to do that. So you're going to have to get them a job as a, you know, what's the right word, handicrafts and, you know, a tailor and this and that and the other. You can't make a living that way. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? So... Nevertheless, in spite of what I just said, what was the haters like, what, they, what the Sephardim called the Talmud Torah? It's like, they were bad news. You had one rabbi and he beats you up and all the rest of it, like, like we all know used to happen. And, and the, the quarters were not good. And so the French 
brought in people, bring money, and uh, make a school building and try to fix things up. Uh, and they didn't, as far as I'm aware. I could be wrong about this. I'm not an expert in this particular Nakuda. I don't think they tried to unfrom anybody, but it's going to happen automatically. But on the other hand, even if you don't try to unfrom anybody, the poverty is going to make people unfrom. Because the girls are going to go into whatever unfortunate line of work they're going to go into, and that got to be a big problem. And and the Panayitzuk didn't know what to do. Uh, the only thing you do is ask the French to, you know, build more schools and build schools for girls, all the rest. But what's the point of building a school for a girl if all you're going to teach it be is like a seamstress, you're not going to make enough money that way, and unfortunately you make more money doing bad stuff. And so you see what I'm saying? You needed a person who's a rov who can, like, lead the kahila into some kind of new way of staying from on the one hand, but fixing the economic situation on the other. And he did not do that. All he did was run the traditional rabbinical side well. In other words, he certainly got, was it, was a, you know, you know how to paskin, and he knew how to run the kashras, and he knew how to, you know, deal with difficult halakhic situations. And, you know, he could give a shir like nobody's business, and he could give a Shabbat and drush and all the rest of it like nobody's business. All that is true. But what's needed is, I'm not sure exactly how to put this, I'll use like a Hersheyan type approach, by which I mean that you create a whole kahila under a new basis. Um, I'm talking about this, the last part of the 19th century. And since they didn't, so the missionaries had a field day. Uh, the Christians built a Christian hospital, Jews for Jesus hospital, in the middle of the Jewish quarter. The parents who wanted their kids to get a good education would send them to Protestant schools. You know what's going to happen. They're going to try to convert them. And if they don't convert them, they'll certainly unfrom them. And that's what happened. The local youth who wanted to stay Jewish didn't have a good you know, uh, way of doing it. They tried. The money wasn't there. And so it's very interesting now, this is all, you wouldn't know it unless you read the historical research that people did, you know, and the records that people described what was going on Damascus during this time. So you could say, oh, this person was a big posek, which is true, and everything was going great, and, and you know, and, and uh, you know, the guild was all, there was no reform Judaism, which was true, and everything was fine. It's not like that. Actually, things fell apart. You understand? Things fell apart. And... I'll say that Ravitsik Abalafi was willing to try all kind of new, uh, you know, methods. He didn't want the French to bring in, the French Jews bring in non-from stuff, and they didn't exactly. But on the other hand, uh, you know, he didn't simply say, that was not his attitude at all. But that simply made it that those who were the from-from-from in the community held that he's not from, which is ridiculous. And so the result was that... You know, he had a position as the rub in the community, but it got undermined. Ad Kedekach, that the community appealed to the chief rabbi of the Turkish Empire to depose him and knock him out, which he did. At that time, as part of the Turkish Empire, there was something called Chacham Bashi, which means chief rabbi of the Turkish Empire in Constantinople. Uh, who was there? Moshe Alevi. These are names that people don't know. And he was tight with the sultan. And, um, like I said before, anybody's a rub in one of these kahillas, especially these Friday kahillas, they're worse than the Ashkenaz and the Machlokas. You know, I'll tell you that right now. Uh, they're worse than the Ashkenaz and the Machlokas. 
So whatever team supported Rav Avalafia, the other family, you know, there are all these rich families, or or at least formerly rich families, and, you know, whoever this one supports, the other one goes against. And I won't go with all the sordid details. And they deposed him. So this is extremely unusual that Rav gets fired because Alpidin is not supposed to be that way. Like I mentioned in the morning, the, the, the rule was if you get elected, you get elected for life. You get elected for three years, and then if you survive that, then the next time is for life. So uh, he should have been in Lake Flint, and he was born in the Kahila, and he knew everything better than anybody else, and he lived there, and he was a Damascus Jew, and he loved the Kahila, and he wanted to build it up, and it was up to him who would become a big Malcolm Torah and all the rest of it, but that's not how the cookie crumbles, you see? And so he was knocked out, and the Kahila itself, they didn't even know who to put in, in place. They asked the chief rabbi, who do you suggest? And he sent the Saba Kaddish of all people, uh, you know, Shlomo Alfandari, very from a guy who became the rabbi after our hero in Damascus. So now you have a really um, tense situation. You have the former rabbi. Now, both of these guys are heavy hitters. The Saba, these are famous, famous, very big Gedon Poskin of this Fardim. So, to use modern terminology, suppose I told you that, you know, they fired Avadi Yosef and they brought in, uh, you know, somebody else. But Avadi Yosef is still on that show. Can you imagine the tension involved? Uh, I think you can imagine. So Alfandari was a big rabbi, all the rest of it, but the people didn't like him. They didn't get along with him. He didn't know the local customs. He didn't know the languages. And he was a takif in his way. And it didn't work out. How do I know it didn't work out? They eventually petitioned and got him fired. You see? And he brought in somebody else uh, in 1910, whatever it was, Rabbi Yaakov Danan, who actually started the fight against all the negative economic and moral issues in the community. So you see, it was a time of stress and storm. Uh, now, I'll say this. Rabbi Shlomo Lezal Fandari, uh, you know, uh, you, maybe you don't know what it is. I bet you I'm going to say something you'll know what I'm talking about. Do you ever see that book from the Arts World? where the Menchus Elazar went once to Palestine in 1930 to pay one visit to So the Menchus Elazar being super anti-Zionist, and he went to visit the Saba Kaddish, who was over 100 years old, living already at that time in Yerushalayim, to talk in Hilchus anti-Zionism. Uh, and they're both very big Mekobalim, uh big Mekobalim. But I'll say this, Alfandari was a friend with Rav Cook, so he didn't agree... He condemned the fact that, you know, the Munkachas and Satmar's all trashing Rav Cook. So it's a very complicated kind of world out there. But I'm going back to Syria in the late 1800s. And uh, it was really tough because the Goyim all said like this, the Jewish community is a den of prostitution. The Jews will sell anything. The Jews are this. It's dirty. It's, 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 it's all the rest of it. And our hero, you know, he got along with the government, but not in a way that he could change things, and neither could Alfandari. So I'll say it again. You can't go, if you want to really know what's going on, by somebody's simple publication record. Because somebody can sit in a town and be official robe there and publish very hush of a storm. And they are very hush of a storm. There's no question about it. Uh, I first came across Pnei Yitzhak in Avad Yosef's thing. He quotes them all the time. If you look, I remember when I, I remember many, many years ago when I first got the Chavadaz and later Yabi Omer, He's always coined in Pnei Yitzhak. So, I mean, the, the, our hero knew Shas and post-game cold. You know, and he has all these Hidushi Svarim. As far as, 
And like everybody else, he has his his uh, controversial psalm and his less controversial one. You know, it's a very interesting one, by the way. It's often quoted. There's a very nice article about it in my favorite historian, Simcha Asaf, about the Karaites. Uh, here, let me get it. Hold on for a second. Uh, here it is. Um, this is... Uh, Simcha Asaf has... Anything he writes, I consider gold. And he has a very wonderful... Um, Article called "Toldos Hakaron Atzotam Mizrach." I think it's in the first Sion. I have it in the reprint, and uh, in in the collection of his essays, and it's about the Karaites, but from the from perspective. In other words, how have the Rabbanim, the Gedolim, always viewed halachically the Karaim? Are they Mamzerim? Are they this? Can you marry him? Can't marry him? all that kind of business back and forth, which is a fascinating subject, you know. Uh, and this has been debated primarily by the uh, Sfarim, by the way, because that's where you had. I mean, it's not even true. It's not we had most of the Karaites, but they're the ones who lived side by side with the Karaim. You know, it was a big Karaite community in Lithuania, in Troki, for example, but they didn't have much to do with it with the with the regular Jews. And with the other ones, it's more complicated. Plus, in the Ottoman Empire, you had slavery. So here, I just show you something. I see I have highlighted from long ago. You know, in the 16th century, I'll just digress for a second. In the 16th century, it was a huge uh, fight uh, between the Radbaz on the one hand. Who was the other guy? It was the rabbis, I think, or Bionis and Shulal, was it? Over, you know, whether the Karim, whether you can marry them under any circumstance. You know, do you say that they're, if you say their Kedushan is a good Kedushan, then you're in trouble because the Gittin's not a good Gittin. But if you say the Kedushan is not a good Kedushan, then it's not a problem. Like they do now, you know, much of fancy with the Reform. And uh, look at this in Constantinople, 17th century. Uh, I'll just read this, very, I think it's very cute. This shaila about marrying the Karaites uh, popped up in Constantinople. Uh, the uh, rabbis in Turkey wouldn't allow them to carry uh, uh, to marry a Jewish girl. In the middle of the 17th century, no, in the middle of the 16th century, Okay, so um, you know, so this guy was the rabbi of the uh, of Maram Galanti. But anyway, here's how you get out of it. No, it's me, myself, and I. I once wrote an article many years ago in the uh, in the uh, RJJ Journal long ago. But you know, Yicholim Mamzerimli Tar with the Gemara and Kedusha and all the rest of. You know, nowadays. Uh, but listen what he said over here for the Karaites. He says, The way for a Karaite to enter Jewish community and have Jewish children is as follows that the Karoi in the 1600s in Constantinople should be kind of a Shivcha Nachris, okay, and be Shachren al Tanai, and he should free her. Al Tanai. And the Tanai goes like this Imhu Hakaroi Kosher Hashikhi Yashikhar Bimuposalotim Shukhar Kakiseno. So basically um, let's say I was the Karate. So um and the Shail is then then is the guy a Mamzer or not? Because that was the question. If they're Kadushan is Kadushan, they're getting not getting them, then it's a Mamzer. On the other hand, if the Kadushan is not a Kadushan, then they're not a Mamzer. You know, overall that's the problem with the Karates in general. And uh 
has to come out over here. So the guy should go. And, and now you had to carry a guy who wanted to enter the, the Jewish community. He wanted to, uh, what's the right word? I can't say Chozer B'Tshuva, but you know what I mean. So uh, he should purchase a, 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 a Shivcha Nachris and Shachren al Tanai. And it goes like this. Tanai is like this. If I'm, if I'm kosher, so then uh, I'm going to marry you. So I'm freeing you. And we'll get married. And you're a ger. And fine. No, the wife is a ger. She's a shivcha. You know, that way. And uh, and they can have a Jewish marriage. On the other hand, but the guy's like this. If if he is a mamzer, and then he'll go ahead and marry her either way. But remember, if he is... Not really kosher. If he was a mamzer, then he's saying like this: "I'm going to marry you," which means they're going to live together, um, and they will have children. But he's not freeing her under that in that circumstance. So what's going to happen? They'll have children. And so they'll have their children, and after the children are born, uh, they can convert. You know, uh, they can convert. And they'll be Jewish. Now, they biologically, they'll be his children, but, uh, you know, halachically, they won't be his children. But on the other hand, it's a suffix. If he is a kosher, then they are his children. It's just it's just interesting, you know. He says over here, you know, that there were cases like that. And I touched on this in my article. Not, not exactly this case. But getting back to our uh, situation... Um, by the way, the Nodi Behuda has such a child. I don't know if you know that or not. You know, Nodi Behuda has such a child um, in the Madura comma. But w- whatever the case is, uh, here he's going to bring a famous uh, uh, big battle among the Sephardic postgim, including the Pnei Yitzchak, uh, which I think was like in the early 20th century. Now, um, here, wait a second. I have to send this thing here. Okay, let me resume here. Um uh, and I'm reading you from the Simcha Asaf. He says, Mikra Echet Sha'ara Ora Pumus Kara Samachus Manem Beretz Yisrael. That a big fight happened among the Sephardim recently in, in Eretz Yisrael. And, and it happened in 1905 when our hero was an old man already. Uh, he's already put out several volumes of Bashalas and Shivas. Yamin Ben Yaakov Bordurgo Meir Mechnes Morocco. So, a Moroccan guy who moved to Eretz Yisrael at that time. He married a Karite woman who obviously became Hisyada means she agreed to become Jewish. You know what I mean? She's going to conduct herself according to the Rabbanim, not the, the Karim. Ushma Rosabas Yehuda Levi. So this was like a scandal because he's marrying a Karite woman. Now I told you before, the Chashash is maybe they're Mamzerim. That's what it boils down to. So and 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 remember, I told you what the by this Friday you have shalos and shuvas this way, you have shalos and shuvas that way. Now, um, one of the big rabbis in Tiberia. Now you tell me what's he doing in Tiberia when he was deposed from Damascus for a while. He ran away to Tiberia, and then he came back, and then he came back again, back and forth. Most of the time he was in Damascus. It was always very tough because. Rabbi Alfandari is the is the official rabbi in um, what he called in Damascus. Uh, the Turkish government appointed him, but then they changed their mind. But he stayed anyway. 
and they were hot and cold with each other. Because I'll tell you again, you want to have a Yosef and you know his opponent, you know, and the same in the same synagogue, you know, what this one is Matar, the other one is Aser, and uh, there are times when they got along because basically there were only two big gedolim in town. You need somebody to talk to, and learning. On the other hand, in terms of sock. You know, Shlomo Alfandari always wanted to put the, to, to. He was very talkative. He wanted to dominate his way. I'll give you just one example. Uh, shaitos. Uh, everybody knows that Avadia Yosef says you can't have a shaito. Well, that's what Shlomo Alfandari. You know, as it's called Rosh Magula. You know, it's like a, you know, a shaito. But Yitzhak Abulafia held that you can have a shaito. Now he's a big Sephardi posek, but he was a liberal in that. Not uncovered here, but shaito. You get it? And here the Rav. Uh, the Saba Kadisha said, I'm poskening that all the girls in, in Damascus have to wear, you know, uh, uh, you know, a tichel. Uh, and anybody who's a shaito is like a scandalous. Now, mind you, they're, they're fiddling on the, on the, what's it, arguing over the chairs on the Titanic. Because I told you, the prostitution was rising in crazy numbers. I mean, crazy numbers. Jewish girls were falling into this right and left, and they're arguing over shaito. But never, but that's what happened. And therefore, they declared war on each other, you know. So he spent time for a while in Tiberia, and he was there apparently when the um, when this case popped up with the guy marrying a carré. And I, I want to tell you, if you read through all the literature, like I say, the Radbas and others, there are those who say that they could marry the Karim, and I happen to know in Baltimore a case or two like that. Uh, so the Penegisog hitir b'shofis a karit kosher. He said all she has to do is be Megayer, which is an interesting concept, and then she can marry the Moroccan guy. But then, later on, it turned out she never told anybody she had been married before to a Karay. Now, hold on for a second. See, you're going to tell me, like, listen closely. Like the Hassam Sofer. Uh, if it was a Karay wedding, and uh, all the people there were Karaites, so it doesn't count because I'm not getting the lumbas over here, but everybody knows for Gedushin, you need a guy, you need a girl, you need a ring, a Shabapruta, and you need Adam. And if everybody there was was a Karaite, then they're Pusleidus. So what's the problem? No, it turned out that when she was married before, there had been some regular Jews there. So, so you could theoretically, you know, she wasn't Yachadena, you could say that she's married because you had a guy, you had a girl, and, you, you know, you and I could debate this, you know what I mean? Like the Rivash says, if, if it's a carriage ceremony, it's, it's actually a very interesting Shiloh, because it's not exactly Catholic, if it's not exactly Rabbinite either. But the bottom line is, all hell broke loose, uh, because there have been Rabbanim, meaning there have been from Jews there. Shar Chachmik Tiberia, Al-Chadef, Neged, So the local rabbis, Led by Rabbi Alhadef, their family here, uh, in Tiberia, declared war on this psak. Basically, they say you're like Gorin, you know what I mean? You're not, you're not from. The based in, this is an in house Sephardi thing, you get it? So they, they put him in Cherub. And they said they're because obviously she was married before. She didn't get a get from the carried husband. The carried don't believe in getting. The way we do, not our type of get. Therefore, she's still an Ishish. You get the picture. For Abba Yisak Abba Lafia, Chazim Ehe Terob, and 
Then the Pnei Yitzchak himself like, had got egg all over his face, so he withdrew his heter, because Shas Kudishel Bakaroi had gone Yisraelim, because he didn't know that there had been from Jews at their original wedding, Hakudishel Kedushin Gemorim, Vikitin Shalman, and it get kosher. So, you know, uh, that's like a bummer. And uh, apparently there's a whole literature on this. Now, I don't think most people, I'm, I'm throwing this all out today simply because in general it's interesting historically, but Chutzmanet, I'm trying to show you there's a whole world of Sephardic history, Sephardic halachic history, that you won't find in Ashkenazi type Sfarim, but they know about them, and they were fights, you know, in Tunis and in Libya and in Yushalayim and in Damascus and in Baghdad and so forth. And it kind of like flies under the radar unless somebody really chases it down. Now, Sim Chazam knows everything, but I'm just saying the average person is not out there. And you see uh, the point I'm trying to make, which is the Pnei Yitzhak, if they only would publish it in a nice format, is actually a very interesting historical source. Uh, and uh, besides all the other, you know, besides the, the alumnus involved all in it. And so... What happened? I mean, he moved back to Damascus. I think he died there, or maybe died in Tveria. But he was, you can't say he had a happy life because nobody likes to be, you know, kicked out by your own community. Uh, even if you tell me it's a result of politics, but Rishol uh, Salanter says, as we all know, any rabbi is too popular is no good, but if he had fired, is also no good. You've got to be able to, to walk that line. The problem in the Turkish Empire was First of all, the economy stunk after the government went bankrupt. That was a huge business. And second of all, uh, and the Turkish Empire started to go down the tubes also as a result of the bankruptcy. And second of all, uh, they had this weird system where, um, you know, they had a Chacham Bashi who's supposed to handle the government side of things and a regular Abbe who's supposed to handle the Halhug side of things. But it all depends if they all get along with each other. And usually that didn't happen. It's not so easy for big uh, scholars to, you know, to get along without one undermining the other. It can happen, of course, and a lot of times it did. But Damascus, for some reason, seems to be, as far as I know, uh, an anti-model. It seems to be a place where there was always pirud and there were always big machlekes. And it really did him in because it never really developed into a big makam Torah as it might have done. Whereas it had been, let's say, for example, in the 1700s and the 1600s and afterwards. Uh, politics can take you down. And even if you have a big gadol or a set of gadol among you, that doesn't automatically mean they're going to turn it into a makam toro. Uh, it requires not only the uh, to be a gone, but it also requires to be a, uh, I don't know, what's the right word? I don't want to say politician because that's that sounds too, uh, you know, uh, vulgar. But you know, be a statesman, shall we say, and to uh, unite people uh, it's always easy to knock things down. It's too easy to knock things down. It's very hard to build things up. And uh, nevertheless, having said all that, considering what happened to his father, I would say that with the six volumes of the uh, Pnei Yitzhak, I think our hero achieved his his uh, goal, in my opinion, because he certainly raised the name of Abu to high heights. Most people don't know all the dirt that I just laid out today. Uh you judge a person by, by, you know, published scholarship. And in the firm world in general, you know, if you say the Pnei Yitzhak, especially among the Sephardim, the Ashkenaz don't know any of this exists. But the Sephardim do. Uh, he's a he's a serious posek, you know. And uh, in Dalach Al-Kei Shulchan Aruch, including a lot of Kosher Mishpat. 
By the Sephardim in the 1800s, you still had the Choshet Mishpat running on. You know what I'm saying. The government expected you to go, most of the time anyway, if you had a Choshet Mishpat problem, to the Jewish courts. Uh, so you really had to be expert. Uh, anyway, I just thought that that's uh, interesting. And uh, Harel, yeah, that's his name, Professor Harel. If you go and look up his stuff online, if this is something that interests you, he wrote all about the Syrians, I think, a lot. and He must be Syrian himself or something like that. Harel doesn't sound like a Syrian name, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, anyway, once again, I want to thank Tony Baron and family uh, for uh, sponsoring this podcast and wish everybody a good one. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.